Would you take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1 verses 1 through 5 today we are beginning a new series that uh, should take us through the rest of this year and uh, then Lord willing we'll pick up the second half of the Gospel of Luke in 2018 and uh, as I've said in the past finish it before I retire but uh, for the next six months or so, we are going to uh, camp out together in Galatians. Maybe you're wondering why the switch, why Galatians? Well, uh, this year marks the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, and I thought it would be good for us to reflect upon some of the, the gospel truths that were recovered during that period of church history. And Galatians was central to the Reformation. It has been called the, the cornerstone of the Protestant Reformation, the Magna Carta of Christian liberty. Uh, Martin Luther himself said, I am married to this book. It is, uh, in his words, my Katie Von Bora. Uh, so I'm excited as we begin this new series together and study the book of Galatians. It's a different book. Uh, it's not like uh, many of Paul's other letters. It will be helpful if you're here Lord's Day after Lord's Day to trace Paul's argument with us together. But I'm excited and my prayer has, has already been that like Luther, we would, be, we would be married to the truths that we study in this letter. Well, before we read our verses, let me lead us in prayer and let's ask for, for God's help. Heavenly Father, as we begin this new series, we confess our need for your help, uh, deepen our understanding of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Lord, we pray that you would deepen our faith and our reliance upon Christ alone, and we pray that Christ's word would be heard here today. We pray that Christ's word would be exalted among us, and the Holy Spirit convict and convert and sanctify, and we ask, Lord, that today you would set sinners free from bondage. And send them forth rejoicing in Jesus Christ. We pray all of this and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians 1, the first five verses. Let's hear this apostolic word. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me. To the churches of Galatia. Grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. According to the will of our God and Father. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Who's the audience here? Uh, I think Paul is writing to churches in a region of Galatia, which is now in modern-day Turkey, and I think he's writing to churches in the southern region, if that's of interest to you, around 48 AD. But more broadly, Paul is writing to Christians who are uh, regular in their worship, mostly orthodox in their theology, 
moral in their conduct, but something was, was seriously wrong. It's written to churches who started out by affirming the gospel, but then they began to think that their salvation depended upon something they do. They, they confessed Christ, yet failed to understand and believe that God's grace cannot be earned, that it only comes free. We call this the problem of legalism, and Galatians explains the way out of legalism. But my friends, legalism is hard to leave behind. It's a, it's a hard bug to shake. Although these Galatian Christians had received the, the free gospel of grace, they were now adding to it. They, they confessed, yes, God graciously saves sinners, but then they suspected that salvation is conditioned on something they must do in order to be worthy of that salvation. My friends, very forms of legalism are, are always, always a threat to the church. Distorting the gospel of grace into a gospel of grace plus works. Which is no gospel at all, Paul will tell us. It's, it's very easy to say, isn't it? We're saved by grace, but... And begin to add qualifications to, to embrace grace, but then not always consistently think or act according to grace. So, my friends, we need Galatians because if we're honest, legalism still lingers. And as Christians, we constantly need to be reminded we are saved by grace, period. No ifs, no buts, it's all grace. Let me summarize these opening verses, and then we're going to come back to them and unpack them together. Verse 1, Paul claims a unique authority. He claims apostolic authority, that he is commissioned by the risen Christ to speak for the exalted Lord. Verse 2, Paul mentions that there are other Christians who are sending this letter with him. In other words, verse 1 Paul has a unique authority as an apostle, and his message comes from God, but he's not a lone ranger, and he's not off teaching his own uh, set of teachings. His teaching of the gospel binds him with fellow believers who embrace this same gospel. So Paul is saying right at the forefront, I am not some kind of fringe apostle teaching some kind of orthodox, unorthodox message that nobody else in the church believes. And then in verses 3 through 5, Paul says, grace and peace can go to you, that's verse 3, and glory can go to God, verse 5, and then packed right in the middle of that in verse 4 is the basis or the foundation upon which grace can go to you and glory can go to God. Christ crucified. Or as Paul puts it in verse 4, Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. And so this is Paul's greetings uh, to the Galatians. Now let's, let's be honest here. I mean, how many of us in our Bible readings sort of skim over these opening introductions? How, how many of us, I'm not asking for a show of hands, but how many of us actually spend serious time med meditating upon uh, salutations? 
You know, we, we're familiar with these. Paul, an apostle, uh, grace and peace to you, you know, to the church in Philippi, to the church in Corinth, to the church in Galatia. Sometimes Paul uh, uh, writes out a prayer. He doesn't do that for the Galatians here. But uh, we think it's all routine, and we're tempted to just sort of skip right over this, aren't we? Actually, a lot of the commentaries do that very thing. It's especially tempting, I think, with Galatians, because Paul drops a bomb in verse 6. I mean, he gets right to it. He's not wasting any time. Verse 6, I'm astonished that you're so quickly turning away from the grace of Christ in which God called you, turning away from the gospel to another gospel. And we think, well, I want to, you know, you want to get right to that. Well, I want to say to you today, let's, let's slow down because there's actually some serious substance here in this salutation. And even more than that, I don't want to do that because these opening five verses contain the two themes which make up the entire letter of Galatians. You actually have the entire book of Galatians summarized here in these opening five verses. Paul is, Paul is so passionate, so urgent about what he writes that he's already bringing it into his greetings. It's here in these first five verses, these two themes, verses one and two, the theme of apostolic authority, which is discussed from chapter one, verse six to chapter two, verse 10. And then verses three through five, the authoritative message that Paul defends the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified for our sins and our deliverance from this present evil age. And then he'll unpack some of the consequences of that deliverance for the Christian life and for the church. And so the letter of Galatians is about a messenger and his message. The messenger is Paul and his message is the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the problem, the problem in the Galatian churches was that these Christians who thought they knew the gospel were actually abandoning it. Uh, these Christians who thought they understood grace had actually failed to apply grace to their own lives and to the life of the fellowship of the saints. They thought they got grace when actually by their conduct they were repudiating grace. Or turning, Paul will say, they were turning from freedom to bondage. They were failing to understand and live by the gospel that was delivered to them by the Apostle Paul. And so this letter, it is, it is a passionate plea from Paul to hold on to the gospel. The one gospel, the only gospel there is. To cling to and be shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified and raised for our deliverance. In contemporary terms, people would put it this way. Paul is calling us to be a gospel-centered church. To not, to not make the mistake of thinking that the gospel is for the unbeliever. And, you know, once you become a Christian, you move, you move past that. You go on to deeper things. No, Paul is saying in this letter, what you Galatian Christians need is you need to come back to the gospel again and again and again and again. And so that's what we're going to be doing as we uh, study this letter together. And what I want to do today is simply look at three themes uh, in these opening five verses that I hope will give us a handle on the message of Galatians. So three themes. Number one, the importance of sound doctrine. Paul begins the letter by saying, Paul, an apostle, my, my message is not from men or through men, it comes from Christ. 
Come back to that in a minute. To the churches of Galatia. Now, Paul is not writing this letter to a single local church. He does that sort of thing. But here, he is writing to a group of churches within the region of Galatia, as I said, I believe to be in southern Galatia. But the question is there, why is he writing to these churches? And what we're going to see is Paul is writing to these churches because there's a doctrinal issue affecting these congregations. Teachers had come into these churches and these, these new Christians were listening to and embracing that teaching. And so what Paul is doing is he is, he is confronting the Galatians and he is denouncing the false teachers and their doctrines. I don't, let me just, I'll just put it, I'll just say this. This is a polemical letter. The letter of Galatians is a polemical letter. And, you know, in our, in our diverse, sort of aggressively tolerant society, what Paul is saying in this letter uh, goes, goes, goes right against uh, the contemporary mindset, I think. But we can't escape this. Paul is after false teaching. He is denouncing false theology. And Paul is not messing around. I think I already referenced verse 6 when Paul comes right out of the gate and says, I'm astonished that you're deserting the one who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Chapter 3 verse 1. Oh foolish Galatians who has bewitched you? Chapter 5, I think it's, I think it's verse 12, uh, part of the teaching of these false teachers was that to, to really be a serious Christian, you, know, you needed to be circumcised. And Paul says, I wish these teachers would just castrate themselves. All right, gloves are off. Paul's not messing around here. And, and so this, I think this flies right in the face of how, how a lot of people think today. And, you know, maybe you can imagine somebody saying something like this, reading Galatians. All, all this talk about false teachers, false doctrine, confronting, denouncing false teaching. I mean, come on, Paul. Aren't, aren't Christians supposed to be united? Why, why is Paul being so divisive? And, you know, the assumption today, doctrine divides. Well, Paul is going to go right up against that and say, no, it's not, it's not sound doctrine that divides. It's false teaching that divides. That's what Paul is saying in in this letter to the recipients. But people will say, you know, Paul is making a mountain out of a molehill here. Why is this such a big deal? When it comes to gospel doctrine, Paul does not hesitate to say, this is right, this is wrong. There, there, There is such a thing as right doctrine and wrong belief. And Paul is not afraid to say, This is right belief, and that is wrong belief. Now, some careful qualifications here, because we are not trying to be a bunch of heresy hunters. As we study Galatians, first of all, we're also going to see what Paul's motive was for confronting false teaching and denouncing false doctrine. What was his motive? He he loved the Galatians. He loved them. He he calls them his little children. He he passionately pleads with them throughout this letter. So Paul is not in the least bit interested in getting into an argument just for the sake of argument. 
He is, he is not interested in just being this guy who has to win a debate or come out on top or be the one who is right all the time. No, Paul is motivated by love for his Lord and love for the Lord's people. And so Galatians is, is not only going to remind us that there's a time to confront and denounce false teaching, that the motive is to be love. It's also, though, going to educate us about when and where and how false teaching should be dealt with. Now, we're not dealing with that today. You're going to have to come back as we study Galatians. But we do need to remember up front that there is a time to confront and denounce false teaching. We need to remember that in our generation. And so Paul, Paul's not afraid to confront wrong, wrong doctrine in the proper context with the right motive. He doesn't hesitate to say, this is the truth That's false because Paul understands that sound doctrine matters for our relationship with God and it matters for our relationships with one another. And that's what we're going to see as the letter of Galatians unfolds before us. That's the first theme, the importance of sound doctrine. Theme number two, the importance of apostolic authority. Paul writes, Paul, an apostle, Not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul calls himself an apostle, which means uh, someone sent. Uh, In the New Testament, there there is a general usage of this term and there is a special usage of this term. So for example, the general usage, 2 Corinthians 8 verse 23, when The churches in Macedonia chose representatives to go with Paul to Jerusalem to deliver the money. Paul called those individuals the apostles of the churches. They were sent by the churches. That's the general sense. Someone appointed and sent by men. Notice what Paul does right at the beginning of this letter. I mean, literally in the Greek, this is how Galatians opens. Paul, an apostle, not... (laughs) Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men. He's saying he is not sent by men or through men. He was not appointed by a church. He was appointed by Jesus Christ. In other words, the risen Christ called, equipped, commissioned, and sent Paul. And so Paul calls himself in 2 Corinthians 1.1, an apostle of Jesus Christ by The will of God. So Paul's not an apostle in the general sense of just being someone sent out by men. He is an apostle in the unique sense of being set apart and belonging to that special, non-repeatable group of apostles who were commissioned by Christ to teach the church the things that the Lord wanted to teach the church. He was a part of that apostolic band who, along with the prophets, formed the foundation of the church by their teaching. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 2.20. Church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. There are no further apostles or prophets. They are the once for all foundation of the church. And so Paul declares this at the start, that he's among this apostolic band that played a unique role. They were were given a unique authority to teach the church the words of Christ. Listen to this from 1 Corinthians chapter 2.13. Paul says, we impart this in words, his teaching, 
Not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. In other words, Paul's teaching, the teaching and the teaching of the other apostles does not derive from men. It does not come through men. It comes from the risen Christ. It comes from the exalted Lord through the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul is saying here. Now, <laughs> I just said a minute ago, I tried to make a case that doctrine really matters. Okay, now let's come to this issue of apostolic authority. And let's just admit it. This is, this is one of those doctrines we'd come to and think, okay, I, yeah, I see why that's important in some ways, but really, I don't see how that has any practical consequence for my daily life. What, what on earth could the doctrine of apostolic authority, what could it possibly mean for my daily life as a Christian? Well, I want to think about this for a few minutes and see how it really, how, how it really does matter. Here's the simple point I want to make. This doctrine of apostolic authority means that when you read Galatians, you read the word of Christ. Uh, the New Testament, the apostolic deposit, does not come, originate from these men. It originates from the risen Lord Jesus Christ himself. These are his letters to the churches through the apostles. So, as we hear this, you are hearing the words of the exalted Lord written by his authoritative apostles. So Galatians is the very word of Christ spoken to the churches of Galatia and preserved for us today. And yet, and just think about this with me, yet many, many Christians today, what are they doing? They're, they're, they're seeking after another word. Seeking after a new revelation from God while... Wow, they spend little to no time or effort in studying and submitting to the apostolic word that has been once for all delivered to the saints. The authoritative word come from above through the apostles. As somebody said to me just a, a few weeks ago, I was in conversation and a person asked me, have you read The Shack? Um, uh, have you seen the movie? I didn't even know there was a movie that tells you how out of touch I am sometimes. But uh, he, he went on to say, you know, the shack, it, it's a, it gives you a really great description of, of what God is really like. Now, I, I haven't read the shack, but I know enough about the shack that it does not give you a great description of what God is really like. But my friends, why, why are people turning to pop spiritual books, pop religious books, books about someone being in heaven for 10 minutes or, or having some new revelation from God, if we came to terms with the consequences that what we have before us is the preserved apostolic word of the risen Lord? Do we need anything else? No. It's final. It's sufficient. It's enough. Well, let's make this personal. Uh, since this book is the apostolic word delivered to the church from Christ himself. Think about this for a minute. How should that shape your reading of the Bible? How should that shape your reading of the Bible? Sometimes I think we treat the Bible in terms of devotional reading as kind of a collection of unrelated, detached, spiritual sayings. And we kind of 
We kind of float along the surface of the text until we find something that strikes us or inspires us. And that becomes, that becomes our verse of the day. Well, let me pick on preachers. Because we're guilty too. I mean, what do we do? We, 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 can, we can use the Bible as kind of a launch pad into basically just saying what we want to say to people. Instead of basing our words on the word of God. Instead of basing what we say on what Christ is saying to the church. But think about this. If, if this is the word of the risen Christ spoken to the church. Then shouldn't we preach and study and hear and listen to the word with the utmost attention. Giving, giving careful attention to the words. The, the meaning of words. The relationship of words. Words in context. Words in sentences. Following the arguments of the inspired apostles. Because when we follow the meaning of those words. We come to the meaning of what Christ is saying to his people. And then we will submit. We submit our ideas and our desires and our actions. To the authority of the apostolic word. Let's go, let's go a little bit further with this. I think I, I know it's safe to say this. For all of us, there are beliefs and attitudes and actions in our lives that stand in contradiction with the apostolic word. You know, for some of us, for some of us, you're living in contradiction to the word of Christ because you reject Christ and you have no interest in submitting to his word. But for many of us here today, while we confess Jesus as our Savior and Lord, there are elements of our lives that still stand in contradiction to his instruction because we haven't devoted ourselves to the hard work of submitting our minds and our hearts and our wills and our lives to the clear, final, definitive apostolic deposit. You see, Paul, what Paul is doing if we're going to take this to heart, Paul is laying claim to an authority that should shape and determine how we read and listen and study Scripture. This is, this is the powerful, saving, transforming, mind-renewing, enlightening apostolic word. So, so we, don't, we don't bring the Bible into conformity with, with our beliefs and our behavior we bring our beliefs and our behavior into conformity with the Bible. That's what Paul is saying up front here. I am writing on behalf of the risen Lord and therefore submit. That's what Paul is saying to the church in Galatia. This is the word of Christ. This is the word you need to hear and you need to listen to. So you see, I, I think the doctrine of apostolic authority actually has massive implications for our approach to Scripture. And I don't know about you, but I have a long, long, long way to go to bring my thinking and my desires and my conduct into conformity with the will of my master. And so, my friends, my hope and my prayer as we come to Scripture, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, so we would be a church that does not simply say that the Bible is inspired, the inspired word of the apostles, but because of that belief... Because we believe that this is Christ speaking, we submit our minds and our hearts and our lives to his word. If we want spiritual reformation, if we want, if we want real transformation in our lives, we need to be 
submissive students of the text. One of the things I want to say to you today, and I think this is a misconception, serious study of Scripture is not an esoteric, ivory tower uh, practice limited to scholars and theologians. It is the practice of hungry and humble disciples. It is the practice that we are called to, to come and sit at the feet of Jesus Christ and learn from him and to have our lives changed by him. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ. You read Galatians, you read Christ. So let's make this our goal. Since since we believe the apostles speak for the risen Christ, and since we believe that Christ is our Lord, then let's study, let's ponder, let's wrestle with, let's meditate, examine, analyze until the word is clear and crisp and its implications for our beliefs and our conduct are inevitable and undeniable. And then let's submit our lives to it. Let's submit our hearts and our minds and our conduct. Let's exchange our thinking for his thinking. And my friends, we will be made new. That is one of the thrilling things about the Bible, isn't it? When you study scripture, my friends, and you submit yourself to it, God can change you. God can transform your life with this apostolic word. That's the second theme. Now here's the third theme. I've already summarized it. Grace to you and glory to God through Jesus Christ crucified. Look again at verses 3 through 5. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I want to focus here on verse 4. And I think there are four lessons about the cross. Uh, So four and four here. First, the willingness of Jesus to go to the cross. Jesus didn't have to have his arm twisted to go to Calvary. You know that, right? Jesus was not forced by some outside force to go to Calvary. Jesus went willingly. Jesus gave himself. He he gave himself up, we're told. He voluntarily laid his life down. What does Jesus himself say? No one takes my life away from me I lay it down. And second, the purpose of the cross, the reason Jesus gave himself up, what is it? For our sins. So there's this transaction that (coughs) took place at Calvary. We were the ones who deserved to die for our sins, but Jesus stepped into our place. Jesus took our place. He became our substitute. He He gathered up the sins of his people and by his own death, he paid for it all. And then third, the origin of the cross. Paul says Christ died according to the will of our God and Father. The death of Jesus on the cross was not, it wasn't an unforeseen tragedy. It was not an accident of history. 
It was ordained by God. What does Peter say in Acts? He, he was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Now, brothers and sisters, I, I, this, this might seem like a fine point, but I think it's crucial that you understand this for your Christian life. I want you to listen to this, and if it doesn't make sense, talk to me afterwards, because I, I want to make sure we understand this. The Father does not love us because Jesus died for us. Rather, Jesus died for us because the Father loved us. The origin of the cross is the overflowing heart of love of the Father. That's the origin of the cross. The Father's love for sinners that led to him delivering up his one and only son for us in order that we might be reconciled to him. It's crucial, crucial that you understand that. Fourth, and we're coming back here, the effect of the cross. And this is where I want to take just a couple of minutes. Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to be delivered from this present evil age. This present evil age, I think, refers to the, 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 the totality of, of human life dominated by sin and opposed to God. From, from Genesis 3 onward, this present age is characterized by, by rebellion and decay and corruption and sin and death. That's why Paul calls it an evil age. But, but the gospel, the good news is that Jesus died on the cross to save us from it all. And with the coming of Jesus Christ, here's the, here's the amazing teaching of the New Testament. The new age has already begun. The new age has already burst into this present evil age. And those who are in Jesus Christ are already now, in terms of Hebrews, tasting powers, experiencing the powers of the age to come. Now this deserves, I think, a sermon in itself. So let me just be brief here and say, I think there are three specific ways Jesus delivers us from this present evil age that I want to just briefly highlight. Jesus delivers us by a change of status Jesus delivers us by a change of mind so that we no longer think the way the world thinks. Jesus delivers us from a way of life so that we no longer live the way the world lives. So first, a change of status. Jesus' deliverance results in a change of status before God. The teaching of Scripture is clear. Outside of Christ, what is our status before a just and holy God? Our status before God is sinful, unrighteous, and if that status remains, condemned. And what is the good news of the gospel, though? For those who are in Christ Jesus, there is now no condemnation. We don't have to to wait for the verdict. The verdict is already in. Those who believe in Jesus Christ are fully, freely pardoned. Their sins are forgiven and they are reckoned righteous before God. So there's a change of status. We're delivered from the consequences of sin. There's also a change of mind. Jesus' deliverance results in a change of thought life. 
Uh, you, can, you no longer have to think. You're no longer a slave to the way the world thinks. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, literally to this age. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. See, my friends, the, the deliverance that Jesus Christ brings means results in Believers no longer reasoning the way the world reasons. That means our thoughts will no longer be ruled by sin because our thoughts are continually, constantly being renewed by the will of God revealed in the word of God. And then third, a change of life. Jesus' deliverance results in a changed life. So you no longer live the way the world lives. Uh, Titus chapter 2 verse 14, our great God and Savior Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Christ redeemed you from a life of sin. Christ laid down his life to deliver you from a life of bondage to sin. He delivers you from lawlessness, Paul says. He cleansed you. He purified you for himself so that you might be his. And so that you might be set free to walk in the good works which God prepared beforehand that you might walk in them. And so Jesus... Just summing it up, Jesus delivers us from this present evil age by delivering us from condemnation, worldly concepts, and worldly conduct. So we might live for his glory. And therefore, if you think about it, there's a a kind of paradox, a biblical paradox in this opening salutation. I wonder if you noticed it as we read. Verse 1, Paul, I'm an apostle. uh, Sent not by men nor through men, but from Jesus Christ. So in other words, my word is coming from the risen, exalted Lord. My authority comes from him. So you must listen to this word, for I speak for the risen Christ. Submit to this word. Verse 4, I would remind you of Christ crucified, who, who delivers you from this present evil age. And as Paul will later say in Galatians 5, for freedom, Christ has set you free. So, verse 1, be, sub, uh, be subject. Verse 4, be free. Is that a contradiction? No, it's not, because we understand that those who have submitted themselves to the word of Christ are the freest people on earth. Those who have submitted themselves to the saving, sovereign Christ are the ones who are truly free. And so, this is, this is the message of Galatians in, in just a nutshell. Remember, Paul is saying, remember Christ died for sin so that a holy God who cannot even look upon sin can come to you in grace and give you peace. He delivers from condemnation. He delivers from worldly concepts and worldly conduct. He delivers you from this present evil age. There's nothing else you need. There's no one else you need. There's nothing you need more. Than Jesus Christ and him crucified for your sins and raised for your deliverance. So trust in him. And the message is it will be grace to you and glory to God. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we, we thank you for this passionate appeal from the Apostle Paul. 
to heed the word of our Lord. And we pray today that you would ground us in the truth of your word. And Lord, that we would be by grace disciples who submit unreservedly, entirely to the the deposit of revelation that you have preserved for us. And Lord, may we be centered upon this great gospel of Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins and delivers us from this present darkness. We entrust ourselves to him today, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.